Welcome, Welcome to, to Science Fiction for the People. <laughs> Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. I'm Bethany Brookshire. That was exactly as bad as I thought it was going to be. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. I'm Marion Kilgore. I'm Ryan Bromsgrove. And I'm K.O. Myers. I am sad we could not have Desiree Shell with us, but she is here in spirit. And this is our final episode. We thought it would be nice to get together, both to hear from you, our listeners, and to talk to each other about everything that we've learned over our nearly 15 years. And I double-checked and I did the math, and it's 14 years and nine months. We've wow. been doing this podcast a long time, peeps. And of course, it's also a great excuse to get the gang together, which we very rarely get to do because, well, time zones. And we're not just big fans of science, we're big fans of each other as friends and colleagues through the years. And I also want to shout out some of the Science for the People past hosts who you won't hear from today, but who we're also big fans of. Anika Hazra, Jesse Yaros, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and of course, Desiree Shell. Many hands make light work, and over the years, we've been grateful to have such wonderful contributors helping make the show what it is. Um, so throughout this episode, we're going to be reading a lot of the messages that we got from our wonderful listeners, you guys. Um, and you were so great at sending us some really, really nice notes. Um, so the first one comes from Peter who says, it's been a lovely antidote to the very highly produced podcasts that are out there. Which is both lovely and also like, oh, oh, we're so badly produced. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? As someone who was listening to podcasts even before this podcast existed, I love low production, casual, conversational podcasts. That's what podcasts are to me still. When I listen to something that's highly produced, I actually don't really think podcast. I think radio show. I think public radio. So yeah, get that narrative me, documentary thing. Yeah, to me, the that is a feature of podcasting, weirdly. So I have a soft spot in my heart. Most of the podcasts I have listened to for years would be considered, and I'm using air quotes, low production. Lo-fi, Which is interesting because the show started on radio. Yeah, that's true. So we started as a radio show and then transitioned, and a radio show with a sort of podcast supplement and then transitioned into all podcasting but somehow we managed to stay lo-fi the whole time yeah well, we i think it's... in 2009 and we stayed in 2009 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, to be fair in 2009 my method of listening to podcasts was to download them onto my desktop computer and then plug in my zoom mp3 player to load them onto there and then i'd walk around with headphones uh, because cell phones didn't have the storage space for podcasts at the time. That is like the that is like the podcast equivalent of like when you had tapes and you had to wait for your favorite song to come on the radio and then you would dub it onto the tape. And that was and and file size was one of the things that we were we had to be very conscious of in the beginning because there were places like in the ass end of none of it who that were playing the show and we could could only download very small mp3s and or they had to be burned on cd and mailed there um so yeah we uh, the some of the sound of the early episodes being as lo-fi as they were was because we were trying to make the show available to places that normally wouldn't get a science show on the radio a feature mm. not a bug. cool 
I didn't Can I talk that. a little bit about where we used to originally record in that radio station? Yes, please, Ryan, because was that was pretty. Over there? I was not part of the show, but I used to. We, we, after we stopped recording most stuff live, we still used to come in and do, I think, the fun drives. So I have yeah. been uh, on episodes recorded in that space, but I have, uh, I was not regularly recording with y'all while you're in that space. So do please, Ryan, give sure. the listeners some color about what that was like. Yeah, this is how we started, I guess. So a community radio station in the basement of the Students' Union building at the University of Alberta, where I was a student at the time. And um, I think it had been a bank at some point because there was a bank vault in the back and the actual studio portion was the old bank vault. I assume because the hipsters thought it was cool to put it in there. That is um, very steampunk, though. Like, Yeah. It had but good sound dampening. It did. And it was so good. In fact, if you closed the door the whole way, you couldn't get out from the inside. So it was always left open just a crack. What I is podcasting that- without the element of danger? It was also airtight <laughs> if you closed the door, which was a bad idea. I visited Edmondson a handful of times in those early days, and I remember very explicitly having a conversation with Des, I, I think maybe with you as as well, Ryan, about how much air would be in that space yeah. and how much time we would have, depending on how many, whether it was just the host or if the host and a guest were in there or if the host and a guest and a producer were in there, like how much time we could spend in the closed vault before it got dangerous. I guess we'd have to beg on air live radio for someone to come get us. Right. I mean, to be fair, they couldn't kick us off the radio until someone came to get us. So, you know... <laughs> I'm just amazed at how this was like one of those survival movies, but <laughs> I I was I was looking at the about page and I I realized this morning that uh the the photo the headshot of me that's on the about page was actually taken just outside the bank vault in front of the wall of records they had at the radio station. Nice. I love that. Um, Okay, so I actually wanted to ask all of you guys, I've put together some questions for the listeners to ask everybody. Um, And one of them was, when you got involved in the podcast, why did you say yes? Um, And so I wanted to start with, I think perhaps our oldest, Ryan, you're not not physically oldest, but like, uh, longest running? Yeah, I think I've, I mean, I've definitely been on this show the longest being from the beginning. Uh, I think actually it was a couple of weeks before the show actually started. Desiree was wrapping up her previous show on that station. I think it was called Q Transmissions. And as she was getting ready to start, then skeptically speaking, being a live radio show, it needed somebody to actually, I wasn't even doing like the boards at that point. It was uh, a call-in show. Uh, that was uh, that was the idea back then. So she needed somebody to answer the phone very quietly uh, during during the broadcast, and then uh, get people get the callers ready to uh, to ask their questions. So, so I think I'd met her a couple of times before then uh, in the local um, skeptical community, as it was at the time. And uh, I was a Twenty-one or twenty-two-year-old student looking for stuff to do. So I was like, "Yeah, okay, let's do that." Um, and then fourteen years later, I guess uh, <laughs> here we are wrapping that project up. Marion, are you second or that's Ko? That's oh, second. Ko is second. Ko is second. It's Ko. Yeah, although I have stepped away for the last eight years or so, so it 
yeah. So I, I, Ryan is certainly the both the OG and the what's the opposite of the the most <laughs> the Godzilla of our <laughs> of the team. But I had so I was living in Philadelphia at the time, and I had discovered the show as a listener because at the end of my I, w- I was uh, had been in law school, and at the end of law, I, in law school, I got into sh- I got into critical thinking and science and skepticism and found some community there and found the show and when and as a listener and at i had in a previous life had done some work in radio sound editing and stuff and so i reached out to desiree just as a hey we're involved in some of the same communities if there's anything i can do to help if you ever want, you know, suggestions or I'm sure at the time I was probably mansplainier than I meant to be, but um, reached out and offered basically to answer questions. And uh, Desiree was always very good at figuring out who could do what and how much they would be willing to put, how much work they would be willing to put in. Uh, I think that's the union organizer in her. And so, very, very much as like, you know, because it, it was all volunteer, of course. And so anytime somebody in Edmonton either um, didn't want to or couldn't keep doing the things that they were doing, I would just sort of take on tasks. And um, especially as it moved toward being podcast only, it was just easy to do everything remotely. Um, and, you know, bandwidth was getting to be easier and, and faster. And so, yeah, I just sort of started communi- uh, accumulating tasks until I was practically the full-time producer for a while there. Marion, are you next then? I guess so, because I was on there in April of 2009, so pretty early on. And uh, I was just, I was just there because Desiree had a segment uh, at the end of episodes called, um, actually, I can't remember what it called, was called right now. But anyways, basically, she'd just have somebody local show up and talk about a topic that involves skepticism. And I was on there and I talked about uh, how you should pay attention to the way that they label prices at the grocery store, which still feels really relevant. <laughs> I, I, I want to hear that now, actually. Um, <laughs> why? <laughs> Oh, I was just talking about, it wasn't any particular news item. It was just like, you know, pay attention to whether they're, if they say it's two for this price, like, is that actually a better deal than just buying one of them? Or did they just double the price? That sort of thing. (laughs) For what it's worth, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm pretty sure April of 2009 is before I started. Oh, oh. I was, yeah, so I... I, Definitely don't want to pretend to be the most venerable. So, um, I, no, I Ryan's our Ryan's our kaiju. We've agreed. But yes. but to be fair, I was on there as a guest like once, and then I don't know that I did much, if anything, for the podcast until I came back as the host. Mm, okay, which was which was like a a decade later. <laughs> so, I'm pretty sure my involvement ramped up in like the sum the late summer, early fall of 2009. Okay, so Rochelle, you were the next one then, I guess. Yeah, um, I, like Ryan, met Desiree through the skeptic community, um, which I was starting to get to know. And Desiree and I clicked right away. I don't know how many of you have met someone and gone at the end of the day going, we get each other and we get on well and 
I really like you. Um, so that was nice. And I went home thinking, hey, I think maybe I've made a friend. That's cool. Desiree seems pretty cool. And then a couple of weeks later, I think, and KO, you may be able to corroborate this, there was Desiree was going on like a three-week hiatus. She had to a bunch of traveling that she was doing. And I was contacted instead of, because at that point we were still airing weekly. Um, I say we, I wasn't part of the we at that point. The, the show was still airing weekly with occasional rebroadcasts because the radio stations were still expecting it to be weekly. Um, and you really didn't want to air three rebroadcasts in a row. So I got a message from Des and she said, hey, do you want to do like a guest host so that we can do rebroadcast, new episode rebroadcast rather than doing three rebroadcasts in a row? And I said, um, okay. Uh, and um, booked, uh, we booked Carol Tavris and I read the book and I prepped for like nine hours straight. That interview took me so long to write. And I was so terrified. And if you go back and listen to that episode, I am sure you can hear how terrified I am every time I say something. Um, but apparently, I didn't completely screw it up. And uh, then I got to stay and occasionally do guest hosting. And also back in that time, um, and Ryan can corroborate this, um, after we were doing the shows live in a radio station in CJSR in the vault, um, then for a while when we weren't doing that, because we were recording, I think Friday nights we were recording, um, Friday evenings, uh, and we recorded in Desiree's apartment in a tiny corner of her spare room where Desiree would sit on the floor. The microphone was clipped to a chair. Uh, she would sit with her paper because she would, would do interviews on paper and her phone, I believe, out. Um, and then there was like this kind of metal frame where there was uh, a blanket, a heavy blanket thrown over the frame as sound dampening to try and keep the sound down. And then on the other side of the blanket, also sitting on the floor, was someone who ran the Ustream because we were streaming it live out to the internet at the time. So you needed someone else to start and end the stream. Um, and uh, that was me, or I think quite often it was Ryan. Uh, we would just show up in time to do the recording and you'd sit and you'd start the stream and end the stream um, and listen into the show. And I think, KO, at that time, you were also moderating the chat and sending mm -hmm. the host live questions that were being asked because at that point we were still recording live and we were still getting um uh listener questions live that we could feed into the questions um which ko would email in so we had to have our like email up and live so that we could receive those while we were doing the interview sitting on the floor crouched over a microphone covered by a blanket it was a vibe, um, and that was the way it worked for quite a while. Uh, and slowly over time, um, as KO started to take a step back, I started to take a step forward um, and ended up doing a lot of the booking, um, a lot of the coordination. Uh, I took over a lot of I took over the website. Um, so yeah, uh, as KO said, here's some things that I am no longer available to do. I said, I'll take those things. And then kind of became the new KO plus guest hosting. And then I started to host more and then, you know, now happened. So it it just sort of snowballed and then it unsnowballed. It was a weird thing.
Yeah, I can confirm the the bedroom blanket setup. Uh, Des and I were roommates at the time, so I was often over there to do that. And then we moved to a different place, and we had the tiny little booth inside of a closet instead. That was a oh, big step. I will note as well when we had the tiny little booth when I became when I was recording more and went from guest host to um, co host. Um, I would quite often, because of the time zone, so Edmonton is an early time zone, which means you're mostly interviewing people in time zones ahead of you, which meant that the best time for both Desiree and I to record generally was very early in the morning. So we would quite often um, do recording in our time zone at like 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 4 a.m., just early so that we could go and do a full work day afterwards because we're volunteers and a little bit bananas. Um, but in order to facilitate that, um, so that Desiree didn't always have to wake up at the crack of dawn. I just had keys to her apartment. So I would just tell her when I had episodes booked and sometimes she would be asleep and sometimes she would be in the shower when I left and I would just let myself in, go into the booth, record the episode and let myself out. And sometimes she wasn't home. <laughs> so yeah, I had keys to her apartment for a long, long time purely because that's where all of the shows were recorded and I needed access to the booth. This is amazing. I also have done the closet recording which is a step up in terms of like, I, I think it says everything that we've been doing this for 15 years, that now I'm sitting here and the idea of recording a podcast while sitting on the floor for an hour. Um, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the when I say Desiree recorded in her closet, she had actually transformed the closet into a proper booth. So it was actually like a semi-professional booth that she had created in there which is why I used to come over because it was a far better place to record than anything I had in my little like bachelor pad or my bachelor sized apartment. So yeah, I set up sort of a semi-professional booth in my closet as well that I used for a long time. But I think what a lot of people who are listening don't realize is like, those places are really airless. They're really airless. And really so like, hot. we're sweating bullets. Like, <laughs> I just sweat everywhere. Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> Yeah, and you can't have a fan running because you'll hear it. <laughs> the funk of podcasting is real. Yep. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think I was the first host that got recruited that was not originally part of the skeptic community, right? I was part of the science community. That's true. Right? Because over time, like, it started to include more and more science stuff. And I was there. I was on a guest. I was on as a guest. Uh, when was my first episode? Like oh, we think we found it. Um, it was episode 100 <laughs> called Semen Science. Oh, yeah. And it was February 25th, 2011. I love that. Um, so before yeah, we move I, on too far, though, I, I do want to also point out, Rochelle, that you were central to the rebrand when we switched from Skeptically Speaking to Science for the People. Yes, we That's were. Your logo, if I recall. It is. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So put a okay. pin in that and we'll definitely come back to that. I clearly didn't read the outline as closely as I should have. <laughs> All right. There was a transition to science for the people. I had been a listener the whole time. I had been a guest a bunch of times. And then I got an email from you, I'm pretty sure, saying, hey, do you want to host? And I could not say yes fast enough. I was like super excited. <laughs> and that's partially because I love podcasts. <laughs> I recall there were many all caps and many exclamation points. Oh my goodness, I was such a child. Uh, yes. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, like, I actually have a, a real like serious emotional reason behind that. Um, <laughs> behind the, the all caps and the exclamation points. Um, it's that 
I have been listening to the podcast for years, but more importantly, Skeptically Speaking and then Science for the People are one of the only podcasts I've ever listened to that have actually seriously changed my mind about something. Oh. Like That is high praise. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to change your mind about things. And it was actually really difficult. But there were there was like one and the issue was, believe it or not, male circumcision. That was an excellent episode. It was a really good episode. And I was raised Jewish and everybody in my family is circumcised, obviously. And so like at first I was like, absolutely not. No. Mm -mm. And then I listened to it and then I listened to it again. And I think I listened to it three times. And it changed my mind. <laughs> and like I was just so impressed that this show like got experts that were so insightful and the questions were so good and the guidance of the interview was so good. I was like, this is what I want to be as an interviewer. Like this is kind of how I want to pattern myself. And so that's why I was so eager to say yes. Um, I don't know if I've ever changed anybody's mind when they were listening in my tenure, but that's what I wanted. And our most recent person is Carolyn. Yep, that's me. Um, and yeah, I've learned so much just from this conversation about the history of this podcast. Oh, man. Um, but I, Bethany recruited me. And how can you say no to her infectious enthusiasm? I mean, that was part of it. Um, but also, I really love asking questions and just wanted to become a better interviewer. So joining a podcast seemed like a really fun way to do that. And it would actually require me to put in the work and learn how. Um, I was pretty intimidated when I started. I think it's been a few years. I started in 2020. So I'm very, I'm by far the baby of the podcasting crew here. Um, but yeah, once I got into it, it's been, it's just been super fun. Um, I love being able to ask like people who are really into something to just tell me things. Yes. That's actually one of the best parts is that you can email people who are super famous and be like, Hey, do you want to be on my podcast? And they say, yes. I, like, to be fair, when, when you guys sent out the call in like 2016, it must've been asking for new hosts. Like what Carolyn just said is is the same reason that I was like, yes, please. I would like an excuse to be better at this and learn how to do this. My favorite thing, and I think one of the reasons that I've kept doing it for so long, um, is the opportunity to read a really interesting book by a very smart person and then getting a chance to talk to that very smart, interesting person about their very smart, interesting book. There are so few people who get the opportunity to do that. And it's just wonderful. It's a great experience. And I I hope that over the years, I have managed to also make that a great experience for the listener. But there was a degree of selfishness there of, I just really want to talk to the person who wrote this book about this really interesting book I just read. Uh, so I... A lot of it was for me, to be honest. A lot of it was always for me. Oh, totally. It was absolutely for me. <laughs> but I also think that, um, you know, we also, one of the things that I love about this show is, especially since writing a book myself, I have come to realize how many people will do an interview with a book author without ever having read the book. They will do it without ever having read the first chapter. They will do it without ever having read the book jacket. They will do it without even knowing the title. It does not matter. 
Yeah. <laughs> for all our listeners, um, every single person who ever interviewed on this show quite often would start out um, the conversation with the guest before we hit record. There's a bunch of like pre-show stuff we talk the guest through. Um, and one of the things that was always on my list was, okay, so I've actually read your book. I hear that's weird. So I wanted to let you know, I have actually read the book, all of it. <laughs> and they were like, oh, that was yeah, I don't know about the response. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I've had numerous notes from authors saying thank you for reading the whole book. And I started actually including it in my requests to authors saying, by the way, we read the whole book. <laughs> One funny thing that sometimes would happen, obviously this is all cut, but you guys might ask a question because you read the whole book that they have forgotten about because they wrote this book, I don't know, three years ago maybe. And then they have to go shuffle through some papers to try to get, get themselves caught up. Yeah, sometimes I would let people know ahead of time. I'm like, hey, I'm going to ask you about this very specific piece of data that you covered. You may want to have that number <laughs> in front of you right now. Um, but yeah, that's always been kind of a lovely thing. I always kind of laugh hearing this because, well, I did, I read at least, no, I did a couple of book-based interviews for which I did read the whole book. But most of my interviews, I was just like, I just have this question. I'm just going to spend an entire afternoon reading papers, and then call some people. So before we keep going, we also received a lovely audio message from listener Eric Davis. Hi, Eric Davis here. I've been listening to the show since back in the day when it was skeptically speaking. In fact, I was one of the people submitting questions in the chat. This show never failed to amaze me. Every time I thought an episode was not going to be my cup of tea, I would listen anyway, and I would always be fascinated with the subject by the end of the episode. I learned something new every time, which I cannot say about any other podcast. I was always envious of the incredible speed with which the team could read books. The numbers in those end-of-year book recommendation episodes floored me. I just want to say thank you for the years of insightful knowledge, and thank you for keeping my scientific curiosity going. You will all definitely be missed. And here's another snippet from a message from Daniel Yang. Long-time fan of the show since the days of Skeptically Speaking, and likely one of your few listeners living in China. A science podcast is clearly one of the worst ways to make a living from, so you guys must be in it for the kicks. It's sad that the show is coming to an end, but all bottles have their last drop. Best of luck in your future endeavors. I'll drink to that. And one more listener message from Wiley Holcomb. I listened to an episode of another Skeptics podcast at an event at Burning Man 2010. After listening to a few more episodes of that podcast, I began searching for other Skeptics podcasts and found Skeptically Speaking. I certainly have appreciated the focus on interviews of authors of popular science books. I have purchased and read many of the featured books and have purchased many as gifts. I enjoyed the well-executed interviews that give the authors plenty of time to share their knowledge. I appreciate that the interviewer has read the book. I would guess that many authors are also pleased that the interviewer has read their book. I also enjoy the annual science book discussion episode and the annual gift suggestion episode. Thank you for the dedication that each of you have shown to producing this podcast for these many years. Uh, this one is from Darren Hinger. Thank you so much for hundreds of great episodes from campus radio to podcasts. It's been a pleasure. And as I'm sure you've just heard, it's been a pleasure for us too the whole way through this crazy adventure that we call Science for the People. 
I also just am constantly boggled by the fact that we have more than 600 episodes. Yeah. Y'all, we've got so many episodes. <laughs> and uh, what I was also, I found out right before we started recording is how many famous people have been on this show. <laughs> Ryan, you have like a list. There's a few that come to mind. I was just flipping through our, our archives and realized we had Adam Savage way back on episode 25. And when I read that, I suddenly had this memory come back to the surface of walking around the radio station that day, so excited because we had this big name out of nowhere. Um, and then who else? We had Randall Monroe a couple of episodes after that uh, of XKCD. Um, Which I think, if I'm not mistaken, was... There were three or four cartoonists that we interviewed for that episode, mm -hmm. um, which, but uh, it was almost entirely an excuse for Desiree to get to talk to Randall Monroe. She was definitely fangirling. Yeah, that was that was definitely there was definitely a time where the the guests the the question of who to have on was kind of like who does Des want to just talk to right now, and how can we make that fit? I love that. What does Desiree want? We'll make it happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, though. The power of Desiree's charisma cannot be underestimated. When I <laughs> came on this show for the first time, I was just she blows everyone away. Like, you can't you can't not be amazed. <laughs> and of course, we've had some science communicating greats. We've had Mary Roach on a few times, I think, and Ed Young on a few times. He's always a great interview. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Ed Young, I think, twice. And you had Dan Savage. I did. That was my biggest fangirl, I have to admit. I had been listening to Dan Savage's podcast at that point for, I don't know, like eight or nine years of my life. So getting an opportunity to talk to him about one of his books was very exciting. And I think I managed to just barely not come off like a crazy fangirl, which I am grateful for. And uh, Desiree had Noam Chomsky. Which she I'm did. just, <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was another one um, where uh, Desiree was like, I really want to talk to Noam Chomsky. And I was like, I mean, I'll try. I'll see what I can do, Desiree. I'll see what I can do. And made it happen. I don't remember the details of how I made it happen, but I did. Well, some people were definitely harder than others to get, but... I do remember feeling like pretty excited, you know, maybe, well, I guess after Adam Savage, but uh, around like the 25 episode mark when we realized like we can get cool people, we can just ask for books and we get the authors to say yes to interviews. Like back in 2009, 10, podcasting was quite young and very much unknown to a lot of people, I would say. And so the idea that we could just like get these interviews with these actual book authors and, you know, um, people from other areas of uh, of life too was so cool. So I also wanted to ask everyone: Do you have a favorite episode, um, either one that you did or one that someone else did? Um, and we're going to start with Carolyn this time. Oh, okay. Um, well, I see this in the outline already, but I'm going to say it first. Um, I of of the time that I've been around, I really enjoyed the because internet episode with Gresham McCulloch that Rochelle did. That was episode 567. That book was so good. And Gretchen is great at helping us understand how language reveals stuff about us as individuals and as people in society. Um, 
In terms of my own episodes, I enjoyed one of my later, one of my last episodes um, this year that was with Christopher Preston, who's the author of the book Tenacious Beasts. So that was episode 631. It was probably one of my favorites because I peruse a lot of really disheartening regular news and science news all the time. And it was just like that book really helped me see some glimmers of hope. And, and I love it when guests get a bit philosophical with me. I'm just sad that you took because internet because that I was know, one I'm of sorry. my favorites too. <laughs> but like it, you know, we're all reading books, um, and most of the time, I have the books that I read. But like most of y'all's books, I don't go out and buy. But I listened to the because internet, and I went right out and I bought that book. It was good. Uh, the other one that I actually went out right out and bought was I think another one that you did, Rochelle. I want to say. Um, Weapons of Math Destruction. That was good. Yeah, that was Kathy O'Neill. Um, that was a great book, and she was a really good interview. Yeah. Do you have a favorite one that you did, Rochelle? Oh, gosh, I have so many favorites. I've been doing this for so long. Um, I'm going to shout out a couple. Just I, I, I was thinking less about sort of overall all of the episodes that were done forever, and I was mostly thinking about the ones that I really enjoyed doing or that I that stand out to me in my own memory of having done the interviews. Um, so the first one that really stands out was um, from 2013, and it was the Fukushima episode. So it was not long after the Fukushima disaster. That was episode 236. This episode was um, one of the few panels I did. I didn't do a lot of panels. And actually, I uh, did a pinch hit for Desiree because she I don't remember what was going on, but she had this, we had this booked for her. And at the last minute, like I'm talking um, like an hour or two hours before I got a message from her to say, I can't do this because of this reason. Can you jump in for me? And so I just jumped in using her outline. I had barely had a chance to read it. Um, and um, I did this interview and it was, I actually think I, it was really interesting. There were two great guests. Um, Desiree, who is was always so great at prepping outlines and who I learned a lot from and how to prep an outline, had prepped a fantastic outline uh, that really kind of walked through itself quite well, which meant that I was able to just talk to these two really smart people about this thing that had just happened. Um, and I, I remember that episode very fondly as uh, as one of the early ones that I was kind of weirdly proud of. Um, I also have a soft spot for having interviewed Corey Stamper, who wrote Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionary. She was uh, She's a lexicographer at Merriam-Webster. The book is amazing. She was such a fun interview. I can't think of anything more fun to do than having talked to her for, I think it was about an hour and 20 minutes, about words and what a word is and how dictionaries work. It was so much fun. Um I also wanted the third one and last one I'm going to talk about, which I think is the one that stands out the most for me. It's more recent. It was from 2021. It was called Lightning Flowers, episode 585 um, with Catherine Standifer. And this book is really good, but it was an interview that I realized it was not the book I thought it was, and it was not the interview I thought it would be, but I really enjoyed the interview. I think it was I think it was a a, a moment where I managed to pivot an interview into something even better than I thought it would be, weirdly. 
Um, and it's an episode I'm just really very fond of and weirdly proud of. So that one I remember fondly. Um, and the one that I did about the nutshell studies, I just love that because that's like a book that used to be on my grandmother's coffee table. And the fact that I got to talk about the nutshell studies, um, that was from 2020, I think 564. Um, that was just delightful to talk to Bruce Goldfarb about this bit of like mythos from my grandmother's house. Marion, do you have favorites? I went, I went browsing through the archives, which uh, I'll admit I didn't get very far because with over 600 episodes, that's an endeavor. Um, so I'm just going to go with my favorite recent episode, which was the uh, what's wrong with Colonel's what's wrong, Colonel Sanders feeling chicken number 622, uh, which was about under the influence inside the world of backyard chickens and the people who love them. And I just I just thought that was delightful. And I sent it to all sorts of family members who have kept chickens and like, I I just really enjoyed learning about chickens more than I expected. Um, I think in terms of episodes I've done, the I mean, I love most of them, but I think probably the favorite one that I really enjoyed researching and then doing was called Knitting in Pearl, which was episode 487, which was... <laughs> They started off with the book Crocheting Adventures with Hyperbolic Planes, <laughs> which which is not promising. <laughs> it was a like the book was good. I enjoyed talking to the author and just I I thoroughly enjoy the fact that like mathematicians were working with hyperbolic planes and thinking they were these obscure things that only existed like in pure math. And crocheters were just like, we can make these. <laughs> I just love that anytime a book has like something adventures in it, it's either going to be amazing or absolutely terrible. And yeah. there's no way to predict. <laughs> Although I have to admit my crochet skills are super rudimentary, like dishcloth kind of rudimentary. So I have not tried any of the patterns in the book yet. Although I still have it. So maybe one day. <laughs> Um, I wanted to jump in with one more mention that I meant to say earlier. Um, I'm also weirdly proud of Vaccine Moonshot. Oh, um, yeah. I interviewed, I interviewed Derek Lowe about the coronavirus vaccine effort and what that looked like and how it was changing the world of vaccine research and vaccine development. And I think it was a good interview. Um, but what I'm most weirdly proud about is how weirdly well-timed it was because it came out the same, like, it was something like six days before the announcement of the vaccines actually starting to roll out. So it was just, I had this like gift, unintentional gifting or gifted timing with this episode. Um, so that was that one I'm sort of weirdly proud of as well as one that was um, prescient, uh, uh, even more prescient than I thought it would be. And a really good guest. Derek Lowe's excellent. So, Marion, you mentioned one of my episodes, which was the book Under the Henfluence. One of my favorite episodes is actually one of yours. Um, we call it the Yeastisode. Um, the actual <laughs> title is That's the Yeast of Your Worries. 
I was so proud of myself for that pun. It was such a good pun. It absolutely should be. <laughs> um, but it's also just, I love, I mean, who doesn't love yeast? Uh, but also, it's just so refreshing and interesting to get the things that you got out of this. You know, like, sure, you think about, like, sourdough or whatever but the marvels underlying those tiny little creatures in your bread were just absolutely amazing and i love what you got out of those guests i thought it was really really great um and of course i love all my children equally but one of my favorites um (laughs) was actually one of the last episodes we did in 2020 which was it's a pandemic why are we so bored um because by that point, I had begun to really realize how much our responses to the pandemic were not about being sick. They were about the fear of being sick. And they were not about staying at home. They were about how lonely and bored we were staying home. Like it, the entire thing was this huge exercise in sociology. <laughs> and I love that. I got a chance to explore that with some experts and people who had actually worked on it. Yeah, that was one of my favorites too. What about Ryan? Ryan, do you have a fave? Uh, Like everyone, it's hard to pick one. Um, So maybe go briefly over a few of them. Uh, And it's hard to remember specifics too, when you've listened to in some form over 600 episodes, but uh, I'll say first one here is a, the Curious Life of Krill, number 521. And I think, Rochelle, you were saying something along the lines of like, you never know like what apparently boring thing turns out to be really interesting. This is one of them. Um, what a curious life Krill lead. And I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to learn more about them for that hour. Um, so big shout out to that one. Um, one that always stood out as memorable to me was number 208, Brain on Fire, which was a book written by uh, Susanna Callahan, who I'll just read from the blurb quickly, woke up alone in a hospital room strapped to her bed and unable to move or speak with no memory of how she got there. Basically, this is kind of a journalist look into their own experience with a month where doctors were trying to figure out what was going on with her, which after a series of misdiagnoses ended up being a rare form of encephalitis. And then um, a general shout out to any episode that Mary Roach has been on, um, because I think she was probably my favorite guest to come on. So funny and so intelligent as well. So great. Uh, I will miss not having interviews to edit of her latest books. KO, do you have any favorites? So I have a, I more have a category of favorites because while every interview across the board was well-prepared and the questions were thoughtful and the hosts were engaging and they were they they were occasionally dud guests but it was never for lack of trying (laughs) from the host i always loved the the episodes where where the host had a particular interest in the the topic as a whole so um Desiree was very interested in neuroscience and sort of behavior and how the brain interacted with that. And so those episodes were always really engaging to listen to. Rochelle, I remember early on you having a particular interest in math and mathematics. And and so it was always fun to listen to you do a math episode. Um, 
Bethany, both pseudonym and post, um, the early episodes were almost all about sex or in some way, but there was always like, you, and most, a lot of them you were, it was you as a guest, but your enthusiasm for the topic and for wanting to make it accessible really grabbed me. Um, and that was one thing that I really liked about the show as a whole was that it gave it gave people time to sort of talk about the topic and to really say, oh, this is interesting. Let's take the, down this little rabbit hole a little bit. And so whenever th th there was always a sort of extra special smile in the voice when the host was talking about a topic that they really loved. And that was always my um, my sweet spot. I have. Dial. I, I I narrowed in the, the the episode that I referred to the most in my personal life, um, and it's actually it's sort of two episodes. Episode eighty five and ninety five. We had an allergist named Dr. Gary Stadmeyer, Stadmauer, Stadmauer, um, and he. It was basically a here are some common misconceptions about allergies, and here are some things that people don't know, and I want to sort of demystify, and. I have referred to that that idea of that allergies can change over time as you age and as with exposure to uh, um, with exposure to new potential allergens or or analog allergens. The the, the story I, the story that I tell is about the, the woman who he was treating for a, who had, had developed a gluten allergy like out of nowhere, and it turned out she had gotten a buckwheat pillow, and the the buckwheat in the pillow that that exposure to that was analogous enough that it essentially gave her celiac. <laughs> and so um, that the, the, the concepts that I learned from that episode have I've revisited them many times over the course of my life. Um, and so that was to me, the thing that was the most valuable about the show was that I always learned something no matter what the topic, I always learned something interesting that I could talk that I could take to somebody as, Hey, you know what? I heard about that. I was, I was the, before the, well, actually on the internet was a thing. I was the guy who was like, you know what I heard? Oh yeah. <laughs> and it was too. almost always referring to something I'd learned on the show. My brother and I like to joke that well, actually is going to be on our tombstones. <laughs> <laughs> Here is a, another message from one of our listeners, Jason Snowden. Thanks for all the great interviews and all the best for the future. I'll always remember Sci for the Peeps as the place I started a podcast thinking I wasn't going to finish it, but quickly became engrossed in a topic I'd never thought about. And I think, uh, I think Jason, that's pretty much all of us. <laughs> also, bonus points for Sci for the Peeps, which in my head now means like those little Easter peeps, and they've all got oh. headphones on. <laughs> We should get oh, little man. caricatures of us as peeps. That we sounds should. like a great way to spend money. <laughs> um, uh, sort of following along to Bethany's question, I want to know um, for the hosts or even uh, Ko and Ryan, is there an episode or a topic that you wanted covered that we just never got around to doing? I have one immediately. I have been looking for a modern book on the Panama Canal for like, six or seven years, never found it, never found the one. And I'm real sad that I didn't get to do a Panama Canal episode. What about you, Bethany? Oh, man, that's hard. Uh, I've, I mean, I have so many ideas that kind of swim around in my head. And like, some of them, I end up turning into actual journalistic articles because they're swimming around in my head. And <laughs> some of them turn into podcasts. Um, but I would say one of the ones that 
I wanted to pursue, and that may become an article someday, so like stay tuned, um, is the use of prescribed fire to benefit endangered species. Um, because we're seeing a lot of stuff about like wildfires and how they're bad, but also how you need to do prescribed fire so that you don't have wildfires that are super bad. But those prescribed fires play a role on the landscape. And so often what we hear is like, oh, they play a role in the landscape and they like burn underbrush and they, you know, like can free seeds and isn't that nice. But in fact, they also do a lot of other things. And there are specific endangered species in places you would not think of that actually benefit from low level wildfires. And so I've, I've always kind of wanted to, to do something with that. So maybe. Yeah, an episode on prescribed burns and like controlled burns is, is definitely something that was on my list of ideas that I never got around to. Carolyn, do you have one you never got to? Um, well, there's, yeah, I mean, there's so many things that I would have loved to cover. I'm really like, I'm weirdly into ancient food and like what we can learn about it through chemistry. It's definitely something that I've written about. Um, so sort of, you take leftovers of things, proteins or lipids that get sucked into uh, pots and you look at them through chemical analysis methods and you can learn some things about people in the past. So that's one I would have loved to have done as an episode. And this has definitely come up before, but I'm like jealous of many of y'all's episodes. Um, I would have loved to have interviewed Bethany about pests or have been able to talk to Mary Roach about any of her books. But yeah, there's just been so much good stuff on the show. So, ah, sigh. So many episodes we won't get to do. Ryan, was there anything that we never covered that you were like, why won't they ever ask the important question? I'm always, I always just like was happy to sit back and see what files showed up. Um, it was, it was always like you guys enjoyed uh, reaching out to authors and asking questions. And I really enjoyed just kind of like seeing that happen and not, not really knowing what was coming my way, but there was always something interesting. I do have two episodes that are like, the ones that were always on my to-do list, but I never, never got around to. One is just finding someone to talk to about the weird phases of water ice, because I thought I understood ice. And then I started, I can't remember how I ran across it, but then I realized I really don't understand what ice does, especially under high temperatures and pressures. And like, I could never quite find the person or the article to base something off of for that episode. And then it would have been nice. We talked about it, but never quite got around to doing it to do an episode on long COVID because that is going to be a big deal going forward. It is. And <laughs> there is actually a big uh, newsletter um, that is going to focus exclusively on long COVID um, that I'm trying to remember if we've had Betsy Ladiesetz as a guest before, um, but she's a science journalist um, whose work I'm familiar with. And I, Carolyn, I think you're familiar with her work too. She writes for Science News sometimes. Um, and she, her newsletter for that is going to be called, it's called The Sick Times. Um, and it's like a weekly newsletter about long COVID. But yeah, I think it's going to be so important. I mean, like we we mentioned Ed Young earlier, and he has been writing excellent articles on long COVID throughout the pandemic. And he's definitely worth like reading his his writing on the topic is definitely worthwhile for anyone who uh, is unaware how much of a problem it's going to become. 
KO, do you have any episodes that we desperately needed to do and didn't? I was looking back through the archives, thinking about this, um, and I want to add. A, I want to add somebody to our list of sort of famous people is uh, Andrew Ware, who wrote The Martian. We interviewed him uh, right? about the time. I think about the time that the movie was coming out, or. <laughs> Uh, around then so um but i was thinking about mars because one of the people who was originally involved in the, in the was supposed to be involved in the um in the cartoon episode the cartoonists episode was zach then zach wiener now zach wiener smith um i would have loved to have gotten a chance to hear you guys talk to him about city of city on mars the book that he just wrote with his wife about the actual practical uh, implications of trying to colonize another planet um and also i think i would have liked to have uh had randall monroe back on to talk about his what if books um because though that's where he sort of somebody will sort of ask us a sciencey question like the one that I, the one that i always remember is um how how high would the west coast be in order for a car to roll under it, like un, just under gravity to roll all the way from the West Coast to the East Coast. And the answer was like way higher than I thought, <laughs> essentially because of the drag. But um, those books are really interesting. And his um, his explainer books about uh, like tr just trying to explain science concepts just using the most common 500 words or whatever. Of course, I'm blanking on the titles of those. But um, so, yeah, those are. I guess they're in some ways they're sort of follow-ups, but um, I would have liked to have had those guys back on again. You kind of prompted a couple ideas for me that maybe come to mind. On the cartoonist then, I feel like we used to talk about, could we get Ryan North on from Dinosaur Comics? And he's done a bunch of other things. Uh, I don't think we ever had him. That would have been fun. And then the other thing that came to mind is um, we kind of like turned away from astronomy or kind of physics-related topics, I think, in the last couple of years. Which is good because like we've had this kind of focus on making it making science relatable to people and everything. But um, what's going on in physics? They found the Higgs boson. Um, now what? Do they need another collider? Maybe um, they've been kind of quiet. What's going on over there? Well, I think it's because they're all learning now that if you want to look for a new boson, you just need to actually sweep under the couch. Okay. <laughs> Like you need um, to look under there. It's going to be cat toys, dust bunnies, Higgs boson. There it is. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you heard it, Ko, because I think it was maybe after you took uh, you you took a step back. But I did interview theoretical cosmologist Roberto Trotta about his really beautiful book, The Edge of the Sky: All You Need to Know About the All There Is, which tries to explain the history and concepts of cosmology using the thousand most common words in the English language. And it is a beautiful book, uh, and it was a really fun interview. Oh, yeah, that's one where I definitely went out and bought the book after listening to that. I have that book, and it is one of these books that I occasionally buy for other people. I'm now wondering how much money all of us have spent buying books that other people have interviewed people for on the show, because I bet it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's so it's so money, so I many dollars. I, I mean, I have I have behind me as we speak a uh, a stack of books that are like books that I bought because I'll give this to somebody as a gift and I have to go through it before Christmas now. <laughs> um, so I actually wondered, and I and I'm asking this question because I have an answer to it personally. Um, <laughs> when you all first started hosting, and this is specifically for the hosts, was there anyone in podcasting? who you specifically admired and who you were like, oh, 
I want to be that kind of interviewer. Um, I mean, I think many of us wanted to be Desiree, so so there was that. Um, but yeah. I actually, I always feel this is exceptionally nerdy. Um, have any of you ever heard the podcast, and it's also a radio show, In Our Time with Melvin Bragg? It's like A-plus British interview. He gets a panel every week of people, and they discuss big ideas in history. And it can be anything, you know, it can be the Higgs boson. It can be evolution. It can be, you know, Hildegard of Bingen. It can be. Um, and I loved his interview style. I have always found to be so, in, and, and, you know, because he's, he's like us, he reads the whole book. Even if that means he's reading Beowulf for like the 10th time, he's going to do it. And I just, I love that. And I love how educated he is as he comes into the interviews, but he still manages to, with all of his people, bring it back and say, no, 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 we're communicating this for a lay audience. Don't you be all expert with me. Don't you use jargon with me. He will reel you in. And I found that really, really inspiring. So Melvin, if you're out there, call me. Just saying. Um, for me, I mean, Desiree, of course, is an excellent interviewer who I can only hope to approach her skill. But um, I guess I I grew up listening to Bob McDonald on Quirks and Quirks on CBC Radio. And like, in my head, that is what a science podcast is. So I guess probably in my head, I was like, maybe I could be as good as Bob McDonald. Obviously, he's got like staff. But <laughs> uh, Quirks and Quirks has shaped so much of my life. I mean, for many of us, it's a great show. And I'm not even Canadian. <laughs> Carolyn, was there anyone you particularly were like, I want to be Terry Gross? Um, well, I don't want to be Terry. Well, Terry Gross is great, but <laughs> I actually adore Krista Tippett from On Being. Um, and she's typically talking about the meaning of life, basically. But even still, I like her. Her preparation is amazing. And she has this incredibly expansive way of asking questions. That's what I would love to be able to emulate. And I mean, I also just appreciate her voice and intonation when she's talking with her guests. She's really great at drawing them out. Rochelle, do you have anyone? Just Desiree, honestly. Um, <laughs> the, a lot of what I listened to at the time that I started on the show was conversational podcasts that were the quote unquote, two dudes talking genre, where no one's really interviewing anybody else. It's just a conversation that's happening. And Science for the People, at that point, skeptically speaking, was really the first podcast I really got into that had an interviewing dynamic to it. So I didn't, I didn't listen to a lot of interview podcasts. Um, so it was honestly Desiree. And I learned pretty quick that I wasn't Desiree. And so it was trying to find my own style. I knew I wanted it to sound a little bit more casual. I wanted it to flow a little bit better um, because I remember feeling like the first couple of years of interviews, I always felt it very felt it felt very Q&A, right? Here's a question. Here's an answer. I didn't feel like I had good follow-ups. I didn't feel like I was, I did, like there weren't very good segues. And that was the thing I was trying to work on and trying to find my own way there. 
Um, so it's interesting to go back to li- and listen to some of my old interviews and kind of hear how an interview style <laughs> evolved over 11 years, which is a really long time to be doing interviews. Um, but yeah, it was at first it was Desiree and then realizing that I wasn't Desiree and would never be Desiree. And that wasn't a bad thing. It was just, I needed to figure out what kind of interviews I did. Um, so yeah. I know when I first started out, I like was very concerned about my voice having smooth NPR style tones. And I was very carefully modulated. And my father actually was like, you need to not. <laughs> it took me a while to bring my natural enthusiasm to the microphone. Oh my it goodness. Is Getting used to hearing my own voice recorded and like listening back pain. through constant. episodes to make notes for Ryan was, was an experience. <laughs> still hate it. Still hate it. I will actually say that I got used to it really quick and I can now listen to my voice and it doesn't sort of freak me out in the way that it used to a long time ago in the way that seeing video of myself still does. But hearing my own voice, because I've heard it so often, um, I like weirdly disassociate from it. I sort of academically understand that it's me, but I listen to it as if I'm listening to somebody else. That's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So it no longer like pings my brain with discomfort. Um, So it's for anybody who is listening now, you can get used to listening to yourself. It just takes time and apparently some light disassociation. I'm yeah, no, have I to also... share this with my clients. Yeah, that sums it up. <laughs> pretend you're somebody else. Pretend you're listening to, like, I, I pretend, oh, there's this incredibly smart woman who happens to be doing this interview. <laughs> and that that kind of helps you be like, oh, that wasn't great. Oh, that was. That was good. It and to some, a lot. I think as well, to some extent, and again, for anybody who's listening, who's trying, who maybe wants to do their own podcast or just um, wants to try interviewing people, I have an interview voice. I know I do. It's different from Rochelle's day-to-day voice. And I think some of our listeners can hear that in my interviews versus the Bethany and Rochelle Squee Fest that is the annual gift guide (laughs) um, and can hear the difference there. Um, And I think the trick is finding your interview voice or finding your quote-unquote podcast or radio voice that does what it needs to do without sounding false, where you can still sound like you, even though you're you in this different context. Um, So I would also say that I think for me, figuring out that it was okay to have a radio voice, um, and I get told by the people in my life, you're doing the radio voice. Could you like stop? Because the problem is too, when I get in interviewing mode, if I'm like talking to a family member and they're telling it like talking about an interesting time in their life, and my brain goes, Click. and then I just start like interviewing them. And apparently I will slip into radio voice because that is what an interview sounds like to me, right? That is, it's just now automatic that when I'm asking questions and thinking about follow-ups and having an engaging conversation where I am leading or digging or inviting and the the other person to do most of the information telling, I very quickly slip into that mindset and to that vocal range and to that vocal pattern. Um, and it's been interesting to have my family start to recognize that and start to call me on it. And now they don't even call me on it. They just like, that's what she does when she's a certain kind of engaged in a conversation. 
And here's another listener message via email from Sean Manning. I followed you from my master's degree in Calgary to my PhD in Austria to my return to Canada in 2020. In my early days overseas, it was one of my few connections to Western Canada. All the best. Here's an audio message we received from listener Benjamin Keep. This is Ben calling from Rhode Island in the United States. I just wanted to say thank you for the amazing work that you all have done. Um, I first started listening to Science for the People, I don't know how many years ago now. I think you had been around for a little while when I found you. And the first episode that I listened to was, I'm not sure if it was all about the Cold War, but it was at least portions of it were about how the nature of scientific research was shaped by the political concerns and the kind of social upheavals um, that were occurring during the Cold War. And you had a guest on, uh, she was great. Uh, the host, who I, I, I can't even remember wh- wh- which one of you hosted that episode, but she was great. And just from listening to it for 10, 15 minutes, I already could tell that Science for the People was doing this more nuanced, interesting take on science and scientific research um, in the episodes that I listened to that followed uh, throughout kind of the months and the years. It was always clear that the guest and the host were colleagues and listeners together too, were kind of colleagues who were curious about this or that aspect of of scientific research or of new interesting findings or, you know, of the history of science or something, something to do with the nature of of scientific research. Um, And I just, I always found that really refreshing, especially compared to a lot of other science podcasts, which tend to be a little more straight up didactic. Um, your interview style always let the, the, the guests kind of speak their mind. And it also felt like the hosts had lots of time to fully formulate a question, it just felt natural, just felt like a conversation, which gave space for the scientific stuff to breathe. Anyhow, I'm rambling on. Thought your show was great. Thanks for all of you for putting it together for so many years. And uh, yeah, look forward maybe to seeing other things that you guys will be involved in. So I have another message um, from one of our, one of our fans. Um, This is from, and forgive me if I mispronounce this name, Ralph Neugebauer, could potentially be Rafe Neugebauer. Um, And they say, very sad news. This podcast has been one of my first encounters with skepticism. I will miss it. And so I actually wanted to ask Ryan and Ko and Rochelle at the beginning. Of course, we were we were skeptically speaking. <laughs> In fact, hold on, because we're skeptically speaking. How was it? How was it? Was it good? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> I'm interested in the lore, the transition from skeptically speaking to science for the people. So maybe I'll start because I think this probably started as a series of conversations Desiree and I had. Um, 
while we were, we would sometimes get together at her apartment and do work sessions where we sort of half worked on show things and half chatted and half drank wine and all of those different half things, a sort of work chill session, which we did a lot of back in those days. Um, podcast and been, chill as it were, yeah, except ex- without the salacious. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Podcast and chill. I would sometimes um, get messages that were sort of like su- summaries of the Rochelle and I just had this great conversation. <laughs> yeah. Those were those days. Um, and we were increasingly there were two things going on simultaneously. The skeptic community, there were parts of it that were starting to become a little bit, we were becoming a little bit more uneasy with aspects of portions of the skepticism community. Neither Desiree or I, or a lot of us, I think really were felt part of that community anymore. We didn't really identify as being skeptics in the community sense anymore. And additionally, we were really branching out in our episodes. Um, if you go back to the archives, to the really early archives, they're very like skeptic topics, right? The chupacabra, um, autism, vaccines, like very like straight up um, skeptic topics. But you kind of run out of those pretty fast. And Desiree and I had a lot of interest in just like science stuff, kind of science and society stuff. And we felt a little kind of hemmed in by the skeptic connection. And part of that was the name of the show. So we couldn't really extract ourselves from the community or become just a, just a science podcast while we still had that name. And so we brought up the idea of what about, what about renaming the show and rebranding. Um, is that possible? Is that a thing we want to do? What would we call ourselves? What do we what do we want to rebrand as? Um, and those conversations got wider uh, and we spread those out when Desiree and I were pretty sure that we wanted to do it enough that we wanted to have a serious conversation about it. I think that's when we brought in kind of everybody else who was working on the show at the time and said, hey, what do y'all think about this? How are we feeling about this? And I think Ryan and KO, because you were both around in that era, um, the consensus was broadly like, yeah, let's, we're all kind of feeling like maybe we wanted to move away from the skeptic community or being so strongly associated with it and more towards science generally. Yeah, there was there was a lot going on in online culture in those years, to say the least. And it seemed like a good time to just kind of rebrand, not like let go of what we'd done previously, but at the same time, um, Bigfoot doesn't exist probably and is also probably not going to exist next year. What what else are we going to talk about now? Um, Science. Science is pretty cool generally. Um, Yeah. So I was completely receptive to that it seemed like a good time and update uh, bigfoot still doesn't exist (laughs) still doesn't exist it's been almost 15 years and he's no still no you're out there call us because i think i think i I think if we could get him to call in we should do an act one lecture we could just get him on the phone yeah exactly. i promise biggest guest no question (laughs) yes for sure i promise everybody if we hear from and can verify that it is the real bigfoot we will come back for one bigfoot episode (laughs) <laughs> That's our promise. One Bigfoot episode. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was personally ready to take a good few steps back from the, uh, the skeptic community at that point as well. And yeah, I think it's it was all for the best. I think the other the other thing that I recall was that there was a conscious 
decision desire to keep the things that were strongest about the show already that there was that the the piece of skepticism that we wanted to keep was the science awareness enthusiasm advocacy and that was it was clear from the interviews and the episodes that we were doing that that was resonating with a with a segment of the audience but more importantly resonating with the people who were you know doing the interviews and so um the enthusiasm for that was there the interest for that was there and so we were trying to keep a thread to that piece of yeah we want to be we want to be promoting critical thinking to we want to be promoting science and giving people the tools to do that rather than just telling you know just, rather than just interviewing people who talk about yeah bigfoot doesn't exist or um ghosts aren't real or ufos aren't real or whatever the choice of science for the people if i recall correctly was like a a reference to an organization that had existed in the united states but didn't at the time although now, now it does, it does again, again. <laughs> yeah now it does again we are not um, associated with scienceforthepeople.org though they seem very nice they seem lovely yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah um we Desert and i threw around a lot of names we must have spent a couple of bottles of wine one night trying to come up with a name other than science for the people but that name really captured everything we wanted to say about what mattered to us about this podcast. It was science focused. It was clearly left leaning, which I think at the time, maybe less so now, depending on who's looking at it. But at the time, it was a very kind of like left leaning vibe that that phrase captured. Um, but also captured just that we wanted science to make sense for people, not just for scientists. We wanted to encourage just people generally to think more deeply about a lot of these topics in the same way that Desiree and I, as people with no science training, no science background, week to week, we're thinking more deeply about this stuff um, in order to prepare for the interviews and talk to the guests. And so finally, we're just like, you know what? The organization doesn't exist anymore. We can do it as a nod to that organization, which did some really interesting stuff. Desiree Shell, as a union organizer, that's her background. That's her thing. She had a lot of uh, love for that organization in terms of the vibe and their and what they did and the way they did it. And so we thought, okay, let's embrace it. Let's call ourselves that. We launched the rebrand with an episode where we talked to Alice Bell about the history and the politics of the original radical science movement from the 70s called Science for the People, um, just so that it was out there that that was the inspiration for the name change. Um, we weren't going to hide from it. We we're going to put it front and center. Um, and then I said, okay, then we need a cool logo. And Desiree's like, I know exactly what I want. I want a fist holding a test tube. Can you make me that? And I was like, mm, probably. And so I fooled around in Photoshop and Illustrator for a while, and then we had our logo. I still love our logo. I think it's great. Yeah, it's a good logo. Um, and also, I will say, like, Science for the People has now .org 
has now now relaunched. And it's actually kind of sweet because we get confused with them all the time on social media. And every single time I receive a nice note from them saying, hey, you mean this podcast, which is a great podcast and you should totally check it out. <laughs> and every time I get someone asking me about scienceforthepeople.org, I'm like, no, no, you mean this website, <laughs> which is, you know, we're not affiliated, but they're really nice. You should check them out. <laughs> Yep. Um, they've always been very, very collegial, which is really sweet. Reciprocity is key. Um, so I did want to ask you guys, you know, it's been uh, nearly 15 years for some of us. And for, for, for others of us, it's been less. But how do you think the podcast has changed you as a person? Carolyn, I'm starting with you. Sure. Well, I should hope that I'm a better question asker after doing this for a little while. Um, I hope that I've learned to ask questions that bring some more meaning to my conversations and some sometimes bigger picture, but also to really dig into why why people care about what they care about, um, why these questions that they're asking or their scientific lines of inquiry matter. Um, yeah, I think I think doing this show has helped bring that out in me. Marion, I. Yeah, I've definitely gotten better at thinking through how to ask people things than I used to be, which is nice. It's just a generally applicable skill. So <laughs> I'm glad that's what I took away from it. My uh, my preparation for episodes from when I started to, to when I uh, sort of did my last one that I hosted has certainly gotten better and more organized and more detailed than I started out. My first episode was very rocky and plagued with technical issues. We've we've all been there. It's, <laughs> who among us? <laughs> if I Rochelle, had the energy, it would be a nice one to revisit. But that's not happening. <laughs> Rochelle, how have you been changed as a person? Oh boy, I could talk for a long time about this. Um, there's a few big things. The first is I really developed a method for active reading because so so many of the episodes I did were based on books. So I read a lot of books for the show. Um, and I developed this method based on some things that Desiree ta uh, told me about how she read books with interviews in mind, but then kind of moving different and making that work better for me um, that I now use for any nonfiction book I ever read, regardless of whether I intend to do an interview on it or not. And I also do it with um, large documents that I need to read for work. I do it with really long blog posts. Um, so it's really changed the way I read and the the way I think about what think about the things I'm reading while I'm reading them um, for anything nonfiction. Uh, and I think I get a lot more out of that reading now than I ever would have otherwise. Um, because I'm engaging much more deeply with the texts. So that has been a huge benefit. For me as well, the show has taught me how to absorb a lot of context very, very quickly, which has been useful to me at work. Uh, it's a thing I'm known to be able to do in my day job is to take a universe of information in as context and put it sort of where it needs to go very, very quickly and be able to form that into a structure and a pattern that makes sense and that takes and considers everything. 
And that is a thing I learned from spending so much time looking at all of these different topics and trying to take the universe of the topic and figure out, okay, what is an hour of this, right? What is the what is the hour shaped way into this thing? Um, we haven't had to make shows an hour, uh, specifically exactly an hour for a few years now, but for a long time we did. Um, and sometimes it was, how do I make this exactly an hour? Or how do I make this exactly 20 minutes? Because we're doing three 20 minutes or we're doing two half hours. Um, and that was a skill that I really developed. Um, and I think just the ability, um, I know a lot of young people that I have mentored in a work context talk about how difficult they find networking and how difficult they find talking to people who they've never met, going up to strangers, going up to people in a room and starting a conversation. Listen, if you do hundreds of interviews where you have never met the person and you need to form a relationship with them in five minutes because you're having a five or 10 minute conversation with them before you start an interview where you need them to be casual, you need them to be in engaged, you need them to be willing to work with you and to follow you and to trust you a little bit as an interviewer, especially as someone with no credentials in what this is that I'm doing other than I've been doing it for a while. Um, you learn very quickly and it's not even anything I can specifically teach other than to just do. Um, you learn how to very quickly form relationships and find your way into someone. And that is a skill that is just so useful and been such a joy in my life from work conversations and networking conversations to I'm at a party at a friend's house and some new people show up who I've never met before. And I can have the most engaging conversations with people I've just met purely from practice born out of doing this podcast from so long. And that is a thing that will be with me forever. Um, and I'm so grateful that I've had an opportunity to learn how to do that in a way that so few people get. Um, I know quite often we look at people and say, that's, you know, you're gifted, you're naturally talented at that. And I, anytime someone says that to me, because I now get people saying, you're very talented at, you know, talking to people. And I said, and I just say now, it's not really a talent. It's something I taught myself how to do slowly over time by doing a podcast and interviewing people who were way smarter than me and also a little bit, quite often a little bit hesitant. Um, because a lot of times an interview with someone from quote unquote, the media can be combative. It can be negative. Um, you can feel like they haven't read your book or you're just sort of a product they're trying to sell. And I never wanted our guests to feel like that. I wanted them to feel like they were having a conversation with someone who was genuinely interested in the thing that they were excited about. Because honestly, I pretty much always was. And I know- Ayo, we have you we, been changed? I, I am, but I also want to follow, I want to piggyback on something that Rochelle said. Um, first of all, uh, socially awkward folks, there is good news. All you have to do is record 300 episodes of a podcast and you'll get over it. Um, but but to your point, Rochelle, about making the guests feel comfortable and like and and getting them to, you know, share and 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 talk to you. 
I think that was especially I think that was especially necessary because very often we were not interviewing people who were immediately on their book tour or who were were the first author listed on the paper because we were looking for people who had we were trying to get away from the let's interview the lead scientist who's very often the white man and so we were and and we were interviewing journalists who were used to being journalists and not being the ones who were being interviewed we were trying to get other voices into the conversation and give them the opportunity to talk at some length without having to figure out a soundbite and so you were all very often interviewing people who weren't particularly ready to be interviewed or weren't expecting to be interviewed. And so there was a, on the approach, there was a certain amount of having to convince them like, no, yeah, we really do want to talk to you. Um, and then getting, once you got them on mic, it was a, there was a comfort level that they didn't have that you all were able to help build with them very quickly. And so, um, it's good to hear you say that you, that you recognize that in yourself, because I definitely recognized it as, and still do recognize it as a skill that you all developed and were able to to bring to bear to great effect um me personally i think it's i don't so spoiler alert i'm a freelance podcast producer now um and i don't think i would be doing that if it hadn't been for the opportunity that i had to volunteer on, on skeptically speaking and science for the people i had as i said i had worked in radio a million years ago um but since then, I had gone back to school and gotten a, a undergraduate degree, and then I had gone to law school, sort of chasing the. Here's the thing that I'm supposed to do. I'm taking. I'm checking the boxes. I'm doing the responsible thing to try to get a career, and it was just not working out in the way that I expected it to or hoped that it would. And volunteering on Skeptically Speaking and then Science for the People gave me the opportunity to keep those skills. That I still had, they were rusty. And listening back when I only when I have occasion to listen back to some of those early episodes, there's some decisions I made in the editing and the mixing that make now make me cringe pretty hard. But it allowed me to exercise those skills, to see them as valuable and useful. It took a long time for me to finally get into a headspace where I could say, you know what, this is something I am good at enough that I can charge people to do. And if if it hadn't been for the pandemic, who knows if I actually would have? Because the whole there was a whole there's a whole thing about you know losing jobs and things like that. But without the without the experience of working on science for the people, using those skills, being useful to the and being a, you know a, a useful part of the team, I would not be where I am now, where I'm helping other people to come with an idea. And say, I want to make this podcast. I don't know how to do it. I have a great idea. I know who I want to talk to. I know who I want to share it with, but I don't know where to start. And I know how to do that. And I'm confident that I can help people do that because of the experience I had working on the show. Ryan, have you been changed in your 15 years of listening to us talk? <laughs> Oh, it's, uh, I mean, I'm a much different person than I was almost 15 years ago. Um, I think for me, it's maybe not so much as like, how have I changed, but what has it done for me? I think I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, so I started this project podcast thing, um, when I was in my early twenties and I was in the middle of my degree 
And at the time I thought, oh, I'm, I'm studying science. I'm going to be a scientist. And then by the end of my degree, I realized I wasn't going to be a scientist, but I was still like pretty interested in science. I ended up doing some journalism stuff uh, at while at university. And I thought maybe I'll be a journalist. Um, so I did a little bit of freelance journalism after like around uh, my studies and after graduation, and that didn't turn into anything. But this whole time, Science of the People has been there. And it's kind of allowed me to have contributed to a science-based journalism project and kind of fulfill those ideas that I had about what I would do with my life. And um, yeah, like after almost 15 years, it's, uh, you know, time to wrap it up, but I can look back at it and think if I hadn't done that, I feel like something would have been missing. So it's uh, it's time to say goodbye to it, but I feel like it's uh, it's done its job for me, and I hope it's done its job for all of our listeners too. Oh, Ryan, that's so sweet. <laughs> um, also, yeah, I mean, like Ko, I actually I work in podcasting now, <laughs> so I'm a science journalist. But on the side, I, I help research and develop and script and do interviews for podcasts. Um, and part of that is thanks to this one, uh, because it gave me these bona fides that I didn't have before. And they were like, well, you, you have a podcast, so surely you must be able to do this thing. And at first I was like, uh, no, but maybe, maybe. <laughs> and then as I got more into it, I realized, no, wait, actually this show gave me so many skills, <laughs> not just the interviewing, but the critical reading, um, and like ability to hear differences in sound quality, like when you're interviewing people, which is a skill. <laughs> um, you know, all of those things have really come into play. And I would not be doing any of that um, at the level I am without this show. Oh, my goodness. The first time I didn't, or I was, it was, we hadn't started recording yet. And I was talking to a guest. And I said, and my brain just went, are you? Are you in a large uh, room with like very bare walls? And he was like, "Oh yeah." And I'm like, I know. And like in the back of my mind, I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> I always I tell people we are the all hearing over here. I'm like, you have two windows to uh, behind you and one to the side, and the door that is to your left is made of wood. <laughs> and the scientist will be like, "Oh my god, are you looking at me?" And I'm like, "No." I don't need to. I can hear you. I feel Ryan, like I'm that sort of skill. <laughs> Ryan and Ko will know that I never got good at that. <laughs> you can't big be good room, at everything. Big room, small room. That was that was the extent I could do. I am oh. terrible at hearing subtleties in sound, and I am so sorry for all the years of sometimes tragically bad sound I gave you both. I I also give tragically bad sound sometimes, but. Sadly, I, I almost always know it and I feel terrible the whole time. <laughs> but no, it's gotten to the point where I, I was actually able to tell things about the room the person was in. Like the position of the windows, the size of the windows, the size of the room, the materials. Like if you were surrounded by metal, I knew. And like, I, I've always, I feel like I'm kind of a bat. It's kind of cool. <laughs> Did you do a lot of interviews with people who are surrounded by metal? Scientists? <laughs> Okay. Okay. Fair enough. The they number wouldn't. of metal filing cabinets that some scientists have that take up entire walls in their offices should not be underestimated. 
Oh man, you're making me think of a boss I had at one point and his office uh-huh. was full of boxes full of paper. That would have been perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I also, I have another feedback here from my friend Desmond. Um, he says, thank you, your co-hosts and your guests for continuing to enlighten the world in entertaining and educational ways. I feel like slightly less of a dumbass after listening to your podcast. <laughs> How do we and all? I know, same. And we've been at this for a while. So, Rochelle, do you want to uh, read our last feedback here? And uh, another great listener message. Uh, We got a bunch of these and there is not enough time for us to shout out all of them. So we picked uh, a pile of them. But Feverwood on Twitter, thank you for many years of reporting science. You set a bar for quality guests and in-depth discussion, which is, I think, one of the best pieces of feedback that I've ever seen. Um, That second sentence really makes me feel warm and fuzzy. And we've got another message from Dan Hicks. I started listening to Science for the People around 2013 or 2014. I was a postdoc in philosophy of science at Western Ontario, and one of the grad students recommended your podcast to me. You all have been with me through three long-distance moves, three career changes, and the transition from my assigned gender at birth to being one of a handful of openly non-binary philosophers of science. I think the only podcast still on my list that I started listening to earlier was This American Life. And like, Ira Glass is probably a tardigrade. You're not going to outlast Ira Glass. A few of the many distinctive things about your podcast that I've really loved. Long form, in-depth interviews. Guests who are a mix of scientists, science writers, and others. And interviewing and editing skills that help, let's say, those who are less skilled at communicating to general audiences. Hosted entirely by femme-voiced and identifying people with some explicit commitments to trans inclusivity and social justice. The annual book list. I teach an undergrad philosophy of science course, and I have them do a group project where they have to pick a popular science book and record a 30-minute podcast-like conversation that summarizes the book and relates it to at least three class readings. Being able to hand them the book list every year has made it much easier for them to find recent science writing that fits their area of interest. And now, here's an audio message we got from Claudia Klippenstein. To Rochelle and Bethany and the Science for the People team, congratulations. You've accomplished so much in 15 years from truly humble beginnings. I have loved learning alongside you. I've read some of the books. I've loved your Christmas gift guide. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. And Rochelle, on a personal note, I have loved that this podcast has allowed me to stay connected to you, a very dear friend from across the ocean. Thank you so much. Um, so just before we wrap up, uh, the final episode of science for the people, uh, it's been a lovely discussion. Um, what is everyone's future podcasting plans, project plans, anything that you want to shout out? Now's your chance because, um, people, there are some people out there who maybe want to check out some other projects we're working on. So let's start with Bethany. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, as as many of you may know, I wrote a book um, <laughs> called Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. It's about human wildlife conflict. Um, and I'm still a freelance journalist. Uh, you can find me wherever you find quality freelance science journalism. 
uh, which includes places like Science News, Scientific American, Sierra, um, the New York Times, Washington Post, the Atlantic, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and as I've mentioned, I am doing some podcasting um, and I am actually working for the podcasting group Vox Topica. Um, I'm one of their researchers. I'm a senior producer and I'm actually directing um, one of their podcasts that'll be coming out soon. So, you know, stay tuned for that. Heyo. So I'm not going to be podcasting myself. Probably, uh, but I am a freelance producer, editor, developer of podcasts. I mostly work with entrepreneurs and small businesses who are wanting to use a podcast as part of their marketing and outreach and service that they can offer to the world. Uh, but I would love to work on more narrative projects. I have some experience in tabletop role-playing actual plays. And so I'm looking to develop more of that as well. But um, as a company, I am Particulate Media and my website is particulatemedia.com. And if any of you have future podcasting plans, you and sort of you collectively out there, um, I would love to collaborate with you on them. So any of you specifically on the call who are interested in starting new podcasts, please hit me up. Is this where we do our sidebar about two dudes talking, Rochelle? I mean, <laughs> this is a serious, not so serious, maybe serious idea that Bethany and I had mostly so that we can keep in touch. Because and let's Carolyn, be clear. actually, I've been, Carolyn, I've been hauling Carolyn in on this idea too. Absolutely. Marion, you're welcome. <laughs> and Marion. Um, basically, we understand that we are friends who are friends because we work on a project together. And when we no longer have a project, uh, we may not talk to each other very much anymore. And the best way that we can think of to fix that is to have a project. So we had an idea for a ridiculous podcast uh, called Two Dudes Talking, where neither the two nor the dudes was true. Um, <laughs> and it was probably not two women talking and maybe there was a dude in the background who we'd introduce at the top and they'd go hey and then we'd never hear from them again hey hey Ryan, be Ryan. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's funny is i have now shared this joke with several of my friends and every single uh person who identifies as a man who has heard about this has been like i want to be on this show i want to be on the show and say exactly nothing <laughs> <laughs> no exactly one word and this is how we know that we have good friends. <laughs> so I don't know. This isn't a promise. I don't know that that will actually happen. But we've talked about it more than a few times. So maybe it might happen. Well, I'm definitely in to be your guest, Hey. And um, if you want to collaborate on producing it, please, please, I would love to. Marion, any, any projects in the works, Marion? Uh, no, not for me. I don't really have the bandwidth for much on this uh, much many projects on the side these days and i'm i'm a professional mechanical engineer so most of my work uh activities are uh not public facing in any way so uh who knows maybe you'll hear from me on two dudes talking i think you're a little too busy holding the world together uh yeah you know i i i spend a lot of my time making sure that piping uh keeps the inside things in the inside things in and the outside things out. That yes, very is, important. Should be your business card, Marion. Um, <laughs> Carolyn, 
Yeah. Aside from two dudes talking, no podcasting in my future that I know of yet. Um, I am a freelance science journalist, and I'm going to continue doing that, writing about archaeology, chemistry, earth science, and things about animals that seem weird to us. Um, yeah. And also really old food. You are a specialist in really old food. I, I am. I am a specialist in old food. Um, yeah. You can, you can, you know, if you look me up, you can find highlights from my work at my website, and my words are found in places like like Scientific American, Knowable Magazine, uh, Chemical Engineering News, and the New York Times, places like that. And last, but certainly not least, Ryan? Uh, no podcasting plans in the future so far. Uh, I'd be open, certainly, to any amount of dudes talking or TTRPG live plays. Um, I think we all play too much Dungeons & Dragons on this call, or most of us, at least. Um, in terms of other stuff, I do a little bit of independent video game development. Um, I'll have a new project that I'm talking about at some point in my dwindling amount of social media uh, in the future. Um, I guess you can find me at Ryan Bromsgrove on Threads or Blue Sky, but I don't post too much. Um, I might be posting some cool stuff about my day job in about some period of time. Uh, if you like VR video game stuff, uh, there might be some cool stuff there, but I can't really talk about it yet. And Rochelle? I am and have been for some time um, as private and as not on the internet as I possibly can be. For someone who has helped run a podcast and host a podcast, it is very difficult to find anything that I have said on social media in five years, six years. And that, my friends, is the way I like it. At the moment, uh, other than the aforementioned potential po uh, podcast with all these folks that is will be what it is uh, if it ever happens, um, I have no public-facing projects planned. As Ryan has mentioned, I play a lot of D&D. There are at least three forever DMs in this crowd and one regular player. Uh, so we are a lot of D&D &D folks. Um, and that takes up a lot of my time. And I've been doing a lot of writing. Um, and probably none of that writing will ever see much of the light of day. And that's totally fine. Um, yeah, so that's me. I will disappear into the internet night which the is real ghost in this world is Rochelle. yeah exactly which is honestly just the way i like it so we have one more listener message um from kai ven wen um and apologies if i mispronounced that name um and it is you were the only canadian podcast i listened to gonna miss everything about you eh that was very on friend we started as a Canadian podcast, and now we are truly international. I just would like to point out for people who don't know, and I'm sure some of you are, I'm sure most listeners who've listened to enough of my episodes know that I started in Edmonton, moved to Ontario, and then uh, moved to the UK. So I myself have become international. Um, but Bethany, you are located in what time zone? Uh, Eastern time. Eastern time zone, Washington, D.C. And Carolyn? I'm uh, on Central Time in Chicago. And Marion? I'm on uh, Mountain Time in Edmonton, the home of the podcast. And Ryan? 
mountain time in Edmonton, but I'm not from here originally. Uh, yeah, Ryan and I have kind of like switched over time, uh, which has been fun. Um, we're like opposite of each other, Ryan. Yeah. Um, and KO. I am also in Eastern time. I live about 20 minutes away from Bethany. <laughs> So So now you know why it was so hard to get us all together to record a group podcast. We are over at least seven time zones. (laughs) It's there's a lot. Um, And while we are a dot CA domain historically uh, for historic reasons, um, we and we do we have more Canadian listeners than I think a lot of podcasts do. Um, I think it's fair to say that we are an English speaking international podcast. I'm going to miss my honorary Canadian status, though. I really, I really felt very strongly at, you know, Canadian in my soul. Uh, That doesn't go away. I I don't think they can revoke that. It's once you get it, (laughs) because they'd be too polite to ask you for the award back. Yeah, it is absolutely (laughs) illegal to ask for that. As you can tell, it's been a good run, not just for the science, but for us, uh, for friends we've made and the amazing things we got to do along the way. We've truly loved doing this, reading the science, connecting with scientists and authors, and learning with our audience. But all good things do need to come to an end eventually. It was time. And we are sure that other science podcasts will continue on bringing you amazing new ideas one episode at a time. If you supported us on Patreon all this time, thank you. Thank you so much. We could not have done that without you. You helped us keep our editor and your interest kept us going and you are going to get a present. So keep an eye out for that. Um, We also have updated our page. You will no longer be charged. Don't worry. We're here to take care of you. And even if you couldn't support us, but just listened and learned, thank you. Thank you for being one of the most loyal, curious, and fun audiences we could have ever asked for. A podcast is a team effort, from the people who make it, past and present, to the people who listened, past and present. We couldn't have done it without you. Keep your minds open and your science feeds flowing. Thanks for years of listening and learning with all of us. It has been our absolute pleasure to have been Science for the People. The show is produced by Bethany Brookshire and Rochelle Saunders and is edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Carolyn Wilkie, and me, Rochelle Saunders.
Oh, hey, you're still there. Well, thanks for joining me in the post credit scene. Before we go for real, I'm just going to play you two tracks that if you're a long-time listener, you may recognize. First up is the rap track that we alluded to earlier in this episode. We used this when the show was still skeptically speaking. It was performed and written by Omar Wallam and produced by The Filthy Varmint. After that, we're going to play our original outro song, which is called Everything You Believe Is a Lie by The Burning Hell. Bring it on, the skeptics await your letter. You call tweet, homing, pigeon, whatever. Desiree Shell gonna raise a little hell, break the spell of Pavlov's bells. Cause we're skeptically speaking, our mind reading tarot cards and witches, psychics, and their spoon bending mind tricks. All the humbug, flim flam, frauds and shams, the charlatan and woo. I don't think you understand, it's the hocus pocus, out of focus, locus, eroding the brain, making gains on the hopeless. Let the crystal ball fall, smash on the floor, leave the pieces alone, we don't need them anymore. Just a microscope, telescope, magnifier, reading in between. Between the lines of these lies, bring it on. The skeptics await your letter. You call, tweet, homing, pigeon, whatever. Desiree Shell gonna raise a little hell, metaphorically that is. Cause we're skeptically speaking. Thank you. 
it's been years But I've never loved you And I never will Though I've tried We'll never get married I'm dating your sister And everything you believe is a lie up the intro ryan make me sound better <laughs> i i never got a chance can i say can i say it i've never i never got a chance oh. to say ryan you're gonna have to cut this part out <laughs> oh okay ryan can you cut this ryan you're gonna need to cut this part out hey ryan hey ryan don't forget uh -huh. to cut this i'll get it oh my god ryan i'm so sorry uh can you cut this <laughs> ryan i love you please cut this part out note to ryan you're gonna have to cut this whole part out